Hello, everyone, and welcome to another reading. Uh, this is Who Knows. My name is Chris. And um, it's been a few days, but uh, I've been doing a lot of other things, so it hasn't been too bad. Um, let me get situated here a little bit better, more comfortable. How's that? All right. This should be all right, right? Do, 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 do. Okay. Doing good. Um, yeah, like I was saying, it's been a few days. We are uh, going to get right back into uh, Ethics for the New Millennium by the Dalai Lama. And we are in Chapter 7 of Part 2. And Chapter 7 is titled, The Ethic of Virtue. I have suggested that if we are to be genuinely happy, inner restraint is indispensable. We cannot stop at restraint, however. Though it may prevent us from performing any grossly negative misdeeds, mere restraint is insufficient if we are to attain that happiness which is characterized by inner peace. In order to transform ourselves, our habits and dispositions, so that our actions are compassionate, it is necessary to develop what we might call an ethic of virtue. As well as refraining from negative thoughts and emotions, we need to cultivate and reinforce our positive qualities. What are these positive qualities? Our basic human or spiritual qualities. After compassion, the Nyingje itself, the chief of these is what in Tibetan we call Sopa, once again, we have a term which appears to have no ready equivalent to in other languages, though the idea it conveys are universal. Often, sopa is translated simply as patience, though its literal meaning is able to bear or able to withstand. But the word also carries a notion of resolution. It thus denotes a deliberate response, as opposed to an unreasoned reaction to the strong negative thoughts and emotions that tend to arise when we encounter harm. As such, SOPA is what provides us with the strength to resist suffering and protects us from losing compassion even for those who would harm us. In this context, I am reminded of the example of Lopan La, a monk from Namgyal, the Dalai Lama's own monastery. Following my escape from Tibet, Lopan La was one of many thousands of monks and officials imprisoned by the occupying forces. When he was finally released, he was allowed to come to India, where he rejoined his old monastery. More than 20 years after last seeing him, I found Lopanla as much as I remembered him. He looked older, of course, but physically he was unscathed, and mentally his ordeal had not affected him adversely at all. His gentleness and serenity remained. From our conversation, I learned that he had nevertheless endured grievous treatment during those long years of imprisonment. In common with all others, he had been subjected to re-education, during which he had been forced to denounce his religion, and on many occasions he was tortured as well. When I asked him whether he had ever been afraid, he admitted that there was one thing that had scared him, the possibility that he might lose compassion and concern for his jailers. 
I was very moved by this, and also very inspired. Hearing Lopenla's story confirmed what I had always believed. It is not just a person's physical constitution, or their intelligence, or their education, or even their social conditioning which enables them to withstand hardship. Much more significant is their spiritual state. And while some may be able to survive through sheer willpower, the ones who suffer the least are those who attain a high level of SOPA. Forbearance and also fortitude, courage in the face of adversity, are two words which come quite close to describing SOPA at its first level. But when a person develops it more, there comes composure in adversity, a sense of being unperturbed, reflecting a voluntary acceptance of hardship in pursuit of a higher spiritual aim. This involves accepting the reality of a given situation through recognizing that underlying its particularity, there is a vastly complex web of interrelated causes and conditions. SOPA is thus the means by which we practice true nonviolence. It is what enables us not only to refrain from physical reactions when we are provoked, but it enables us to let go of our negative thoughts and emotions too. We cannot speak of SOPA when we give in to someone, yet we do so grudgingly or resentfully. If, for example, a superior in the workplace upsets us, yet we are obligated, sorry, yet we are obliged to defer them to them despite our feelings, that is not SOPA. The essence of SOPA is resolute forbearance in the face of adversity. In other words, the one who practices patience, forbearance, the one who practices patient forbearance is determined not to give in to negative impulses, which are experienced as afflictive emotion in the form of anger, hatred, desire for revenge, and so on, but rather counters their sense of injury and does not return harm for harm. None of the foregoing is meant to imply that there are not times when it is appropriate to respond to others with strong measures, nor does practicing patience in the sense I have described it mean that we must accept whatever people would do to us and simply give in. Nor does it mean that we should never act at all when we meet with harm. SOPA should not be confused with, more, with mere passivity. On the contrary, adopting even vigorous countermeasures may be compatible with the practice of SOPA. There are times in everyone's life when harsh words or even physical intervention may be called for. But since it safeguards our inner composure, SOPA means we are in a stronger position to judge an appropriately nonviolent response than if we are overwhelmed by negative thoughts and emotions. From this, we see that it is the very opposite of cowardice. Cowardice arises when we lose all confidence as a result of fear. Patient forbearance means that we, will, we remain firm even if we are afraid. Nor when I speak of acceptance do I mean that we should not do everything in our power to solve our problems whenever they can be solved. But in the case of present suffering, that which we are already undergoing, acceptance can help ensure that the experience is not compounded by the additional burden of mental and emotional suffering. For example, there's nothing much we can do about old age. Far better to accept our condition than to fret about it. Indeed, it always strikes me as a bit foolish when elderly people try to maintain an appearance of youthfulness. Patient forbearance, then, is the quality which enables us to prevent negative thoughts and emotions from taking hold of us. It safeguards our peace of mind in the face of adversity. Through practicing patience in this way, our conduct is rendered ethically wholesome, 
As we have seen, the first step in ethical practice is to check our response to negative thoughts and emotions as they arise. The next step, what we do after applying the brakes, is to counter that provocation with patience. Here the reader may object that surely there will be occasions when this is impossible. What about the times when someone we are close to who knows all our weaknesses behaves towards us in a way that we find ourselves unable to prevent anger from completely overwhelming our defenses? Under such circumstances, we may indeed find it impossible to preserve our compassion for the other, but at least we should take care not to react violently or aggressively. Leaving the room and going for a walk or even counting 20 breaths may be the best thing we need may be the best thing we need to find some means of calming down a bit. This is why we need to put the practice of patience at the heart of our daily lives. It is a question of familiarizing ourselves with it at the deepest level so that when we do find ourselves in a difficult situation, although we may have to make an extra effort, we know what is involved. On the other hand, if we ignore the practice of patience until we are actually experiencing trouble, it is quite likely we will not succeed in resisting provocation. One of the best ways to begin familiarizing ourselves with the virtue of patience, or SOPA, is by taking time to reflect systematically on its benefits. It is the source of forgiveness. Moreover, SOPA has no equal in, has no equal in protecting our concerns for others, whatever their behavior towards us. When SOPA is combined with our ability to discriminate between action and agent, forgiveness arises naturally. It enables us to reserve our judgment toward the act, and it enables us to have compassion for the individual. Similarly, when we develop the ability patiently to forbear, we find that we develop a proportionate reserve of calmness and tranquility. We tend to be less antagonistic and more pleasant to associate with. This, in turn, creates a positive atmosphere around us so that it is easy for others to relate to us. And being better grounded emotionally through the practice of patience, we find that not only do we become much stronger mentally and spiritually, but we tend to also be healthier physically. Certainly, I attribute the good health I enjoy to a generally calm and peaceful mind. But the most important benefit of SOPA, or patience, consists in the way it acts as a powerful antidote to the affliction of anger the greatest threat to our inner peace and therefore our happiness. Indeed, we find that patience is the best means we have of defending ourselves internally from anger's destructive effects. Consider, riches are no defense against anger, nor is a person's education, no matter how accomplished and intelligent they may be, nor for that matter can the law be of any help, and fame is useless. Only the inner protection of patient forbearance can keep us from experiencing the turmoil of negative thoughts and emotions. The mind, or spirit, the low, is not physical. It cannot be touched or harmed indirectly. Only negative thoughts and emotions can harm it. Therefore, only the corresponding positive quality can protect it. As a second step to familiarize ourselves with the virtue of patience, it is also very helpful to think of adversity not so much as a threat to our peace of mind, but rather as the very means by which patience is attained. From this perspective, we see that those who would harm us are, in a sense, teachers of patience. Such people teach us that we can never learn merely from hearing someone speak, be they ever so wise or holy. No more can the reader hope to learn virtue merely by reading this book, unless, of course, it is so boring as to demand perseverance. From adversity we can, however, learn the value of patient forbearance, and in particular, those who would harm us gave, give us unparalleled opportunities to practice disciplined behavior.
This is not to say that people are not responsible for their actions, but let us remember that they may be actually largely they may be acting largely out of ignorance. A child brought up in a violent environment may not know any other way to behave. As a result, the question of blame is rendered largely redundant. The appropriate response to someone who causes us to suffer, and here, of course, I am not referring to those instances when others oppose us legitimately, as when they refuse to give in to our unreasonable demands, it is to recognize that in harming us, ultimately they lose their peace of mind, their inner balance, and thereby their happiness. And we do best when we have compassion for them, especially since a simple wish to see them hurt cannot actually harm them. It will certainly harm us, though. Imagine two neighbors in dispute. One of them is able to take this dispute lightly. The other is obsessed with it and constantly schemes to find a way to hurt his or her opponent. But what happens? Nurturing malice, it is not long before the one who broods begins to suffer. First, he or she will lose their appetite, then their sleep. Eventually, their health begins to go. They pass their days and nights in misery, with the result that, ironically, they end up fulfilling the wishes of their adversary. In fact, when we really think about it, there is something not fully rational. Not rash. There's something not fully rational. Rational. Sorry. <clears throat> Excuse me. In fact, when we really think about it, there is something not fully rational about singling out individual persons as the objects of our anger. Let us con conduct a simple exercise in our imagination. Consider the case of someone who abuses us verbally. If we feel inclined to anger on account of the pain this causes, should not the focus of our feelings really be on the words themselves, since these are what is actually causing us pain? Yet we become angry with the individual who is shouting at us. It could, of course, be objected that since it is the person who is doing the shouting, we are justified in becoming angry with them on the grounds that we are the right to assign moral responsibility to the individual and not to his or her words. This may be true at the same time, this may be true. At the same time, if we are to be angry at what actually caused the pain, their words are actually the more immediate cause. Better still, should we not direct our ang anger toward what drove that person to abuse us, their afflictive emotions? Sorry. Better still, should we not direct our anger toward what drove that person to abuse us, their afflictive emotions? I guess that was a question. I get it. For if the person were calm and at peace, they would not act in this way. Yet of these three factors, the words which hurt the person uttering them and the negative impulses which drive them, it is toward the person that we direct our anger. There is something inconsistent in this. If it be objected that it is the nature of the one who is abusing us, which is truly the cause of our pain, Still, we would have no reasonable grounds for anger with that individual. For if it were that person's ultimate nature to be hostile towards us, they would be incapable of behaving differently. In that case, anger toward them would be pointless. If we are burned, there is no sense in being angry with fire. It is in the nature of fire to burn. But to remind ourselves that the notion of inherent hostility or inherent evil is false, let us observe that under the different circumstances, the same person who is causing us pain could become a good friend. It is not unusual to hear of soldiers on opposing sides during conflict becoming close in peacetime. 
And most of us have had the experience of meeting someone who, despite a bad reputation in the past, turns out to be quite pleasant. Of course, I am not suggesting that we should engage in such reflections as these in every situation. When we are physically threatened, we might do better to concentrate our energies on, not on reasoning like this, but in running away. But it is helpful to spend time familiarizing ourselves with the various aspects and benefits of patience. This will enable us to meet the challenges posed by adversity in a constructive manner. I mentioned earlier that SOPA, or patience, acts as counterforce to anger. In fact, for every negative state, we find that we can identify one which opposes it. For example, humility opposes pride. Contentment opposes greed. Perseverance opposes indolence. If therefore we wish to overcome the unwholesome states which arise when negative thoughts and emotions are allowed to develop, Cultivating virtue should not be seen as separate from restraining our response to afflictive emotion. They go hand in hand. This is why ethical discipline cannot be confined either to mere restraint or to mere affirmation of positive qualities. To see how this process of restraint coupled with counteraction works, let us consider anxiety. We can describe this as a form of fear, but one with a well-developed mental component. Now we are bound to encounter experiences and events we feel concerned about. But what turns concern into anxiety is when we start to brood and let the imagination add negative reflections. Then we begin to feel anxious and start to worry. And the more we indulge in worry, the more reasons we find for it. Eventually, we find ourselves in a state of permanent distress. The more developed the state, the less we are able to take action against it, and the stronger it becomes. But when we think carefully, we see that underlying this process is principally narrowness of vision and a lack of proper, in, proper perspective. This causes us to ignore the fact that things and events come into being as the result of innumerable causes and conditions. We tend to concentrate on just one or two aspects of our situation. In so doing, we inevitably restrict ourselves to finding means to overcoming only these aspects. The trouble with this is that if we are unable to do so, there is a danger of becoming totally demoralized. The first step in overcoming anxiety is thus to develop a proper perspective of our situation. This we can do in a number of different ways. One of the most effective is to try to shift the focus of attention away from self and toward others. When we succeed in this, we find that the scale of our own problems diminishes. This is not to say we should ignore our own needs altogether, but rather that we should try to remember the other's needs alongside our own, no matter how pressing our, ours may be. This is helpful because when our concerns for others is translated into action, we find that confidence arises automatically and worry and anxiety diminish. Indeed, we find that almost all the mental and emotional suffering, which is such a feature of modern living, including the sense of hopelessness, of loneliness, and so on, lessens the moment we begin to engage in actions motivated by concern for others. In my opinion, this explains why merely performing outwardly positive actions will not suffice to reduce anxiety. When the underlying motive is to further one's short-term aims, we only add to our problems. What though of those occasions when we find our whole lives unsatisfactory or when we feel on the point of being overwhelmed by our suffering, as happens to all of us in varying degrees from time to time. When this occurs, it is vital that we make every effort to find a way of lifting our spirits. spirits. 
We can do this by recoll recollecting our good fortune. We may, for example, be loved by someone. We may have certain talents. We may have received a good education. We may have our basic needs provided for, food to eat, clothes to wear, somewhere to live. We may have performed certain altruistic deeds in the past. Not unlike a banker who collects interest even on the smallest amounts of money he has out on loan, we must take into consideration even the slightest positive aspect of our lives. For if we fail to find some way of uplifting ourselves, there is every danger of sinking further into our sense of powerlessness. This, this can lead us to believe that we have no capacity for doing good whatsoever. Thus, we create the conditions of despair itself. At that point, suicide may seem the only option. In most cases of hopelessness and despair, we find that it is the individual's perception of their situation rather than its ability, which is the issue, reality, which is the issue. Certainly, it may not be resolvable without others' cooperation. In that case, it becomes a matter of asking for help. However, there may indeed be some circumstances, some circumstances which are hopeless. This is where religious belief can be a source of comfort, but that is a separate issue. What else might an ethic of virtue consist in? As a general principle, it is essential to avoid extremes. Just as over, overeating is as dangerous as undereating, so it is with the pursuit and practice of virtue. We find that even noble causes when carried to extremes can become a source of harm. For example, courage taken to excess and without due regard for circumstances quickly becomes foolhardiness. Indeed, excess, under, excess undermines one of the principal purposes of practicing virtue, which is to offset our tendency to drastic mental and emotional reactions to others and to those events which cause us unavoidable suffering. It is also important to realize that transforming the heart and mind so that our actions become spontaneously ethical requires that we put the pursuit of virtue at the heart of our daily lives. This is because love and compassion, patience, generosity, humility, and so on are all complementary. And because it is so difficult to eradicate afflictive emotion, it is necessary that we habituate ourselves to their opposites even before negative thoughts and emotions arise. For example, the cultivation of generosity is essential to counteract our tendency to guard our possessions and even our energy too closely. The practice of giving helps us to overcome our habit of miserliness, which we tend to justify by asking, what will I have for myself if I start giving things away? Giving is recognized as a virtue in every major religion and in every civilized society, and it clearly benefits both the giver and the receiver. The one who receives is relieved from the pangs of want. The one who gives can take comfort from the joy their gift brings to others. At the same time, we must recognize that there are different types and degrees of giving. When we give, the, when we give with the underlying motive of inflating the image others have of us to gain renown and have them think of us as virtuous or holy, we defile the act. In that case, what we are practicing is not generosity but of self-aggrandizement. Similarly, the one who gives much may not be so generous as the one who gives little. It all depends on the giver's means and motivation. Though not a substitute, giving of our time and energy may represent a somewhat higher order of giving than making gifts. Here I am thinking especially of, of the gift of service to those with mental or physical disabilities, to the homeless, to those who are lonely, to those in prison, and those who have been in prison. 
But this type of giving also includes, for example, teacher, teachers who impart their knowledge to students. Then, as I understand it, the most compassionate form of giving is when it is done without any thought or exception of reward and grounded in genuine concern for others. This is because the more we can expand our focus to include others' interests alongside our own, the more securely we build the foundations of our own happiness. To say that humility is an essential ingredient in our pursuit of transformation may seem to be at odds with what I have said about the need for confidence. But just as there is clearly a distinction between valid confidence in the sense of self-esteem and conceit, which we can describe as an inflated sense of importance grounded in a false image of self, so it is important to distinguish between genuine humility, humility, which is a species of modesty and lack of confidence. They are not the same thing at all, although many confuse them. This may explain in part why today humility is often thought of as a weakness rather than as an indication of inner strength, especially in the context of business and professional life. Certainly, modern society does not accord humility in the place it had in Tibet when I was young. Then, both our culture and people's basic admiration of humility provided a climate in which it flourished, while ambition to be differentiated from the entirely appropriate aspiration to succeed in wholesome tasks was seen as a quality which leads all too easily to self-centered thinking. Yet, in contemporary life, humility is more important than ever. The more successful we humans become, both as individuals and as a family through our development of science and technology, the more essential it becomes to preserve humility. For the greater our temporal achievements, the more vulnerable we become to pride and arrogance. One technique helpful in developing real confidence and humility is to reflect on the example of those whose self-importance makes them an object of ridicule to others. They may not be aware of how foolish they look, but it is plain to everyone else. This is not a matter of sitting in judgment on others, however. Rather, it is a question of bringing home to ourselves the negative consequences of such states of heart and mind. By seeing through the example of others, where they lead, we will be all the more determined to avoid them. In a sense, we are reversing the principle of not harming others on the basis that we ourselves do not wish to be harmed, and making use of the fact that it is much easier to identify others' failings than it is to acknowledge their virtues. It is also much easier to find fault with others than with ourselves. Here I should perhaps add that if humility is not to be confused with lack of confidence, still less it has anything to do with the sense of worthlessness. Lack of a proper recognition of one's own value is harmful and can lead to a state of mental, emotional, and spiritual paralysis. Under such circumstances, the individual may even come to hate themselves, although I must admit that the concept of self-hatred seemed incoherent when it was first explained to me by, by some Western psychologists. It seemed to contradict the principle that our fundamental desire is to be happy and to avoid suffering. But I do now accept that when a person loses all sense of perspective, there is a danger of self-hatred. Yet we all have the capacity for empathy. We all therefore have the potential to engage in wholesome conduct even if this only takes the form of positive thoughts. 
to suppose ourselves worthless is simply incorrect. Another way to avoid the narrowing of vision that can lead to such extreme states as self-hatred and despair is to rejoice in others' good fortune, where we find it. As part of this practice, it is helpful to take every opportunity to show our respect for others, even to encourage them with praise when that seems appropriate. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> if such praise seems likely to come across as flattery or to make them feel conceited, it may, of course, be better to keep our goodwill private. And when it is we ourselves who are being praised, it is vital not to let this make us feel puffed up and important. Instead, let us merely recognize the other's generosity in appreciating our good qualities. As a means of overcoming those negative feelings toward ourselves, which arise in connection with those occasions in the past when we have neglected others' feelings and indulged our own selfish desires and interests at their expense, it is very helpful to develop an attitude of regret and repentance. Here, though, the reader should not suppose that I am advocating that sense of guilt which so many of my Western friends speak of. We do not seem to have a word in Tibetan which could translate the word guilt exactly. And because of its strong cultural associations, I am not certain that I have understood the concept to its fullest extent. But it seems to me that while it is natural and to be expected that we should have feelings of discomfort in relation to our past misdeeds, there is sometimes an element of self-indulgence when this is extended to feelings of guilt. It makes no sense to brood anxiously on the harmful actions we have committed in the past to the point where we become paralyzed. They are done, it is over. If the person is a believer in God, the appropriate action is to find some means of reconciliation with him. So far as Buddhist practice is concerned, there are no various rites and practices for purification. When the individual has no religious beliefs, however, it is surely a matter of acknowledging and accepting any negative feelings we may have in relation to our misdeeds and developing a sense of sorrow and regret for them. But then, rather than stopping at mere sorrow and regret, it is important to use this as a basis for resolve, for a deep-seated commitment never again to harm others and to direct our actions all the more determinedly to the benefit of others. The act of disclosure or confession of our negative actions to another, especially to someone we really expect and respect and trust, will be found to be very helpful in this. Above all, we should remember that as long as we retain the capacity of concern for others, the potential for transformation remains. We are quite wrong if we merely acknowledge the gravity of our actions inwardly and then, instead of confronting our feelings, give up all hope and do nothing. This only compounds the error. We have a saying in Tibet that engaging in the practice of virtue is as hard as driving a donkey uphill, whereas engaging in destructive activities is as easy as rolling boulders downhill. It is also said that negative impulses arise as spontaneously as rain and gather momentum, just like the water following the course of gravity. What makes matters worse is our tendency to indulge negative thoughts and emotions, even while agreeing that we should not. It is essential, therefore, to address directly our tendency to put things off and while away our time in meaningless activities and shrink from the challenge of transforming our habits on the grounds that it is too great a task. In particular, it is important to not, it is important not to allow ourselves to be put off guard by the magnitude of others' suffering. 
The misery of millions is not a cause for pity. Rather, it is a cause for developing compassion. We must also recognize that the failure to act when it is clear that action is required may itself be a negative action. Where inaction is due to anger or malice or envy, afflictive emotion can be clearly cited as the motivating factor. This is true of simple things as it is of more complex situations. If a husband does not warn his wife that a plate she is about to pick up is hot because he desires her to be burned, clearly afflictive emotion is likely to be present. On the other hand, where inaction is simply the result of indolence, the mental and emotional state of the individual may not be so gravely negative, but the consequence may still be very serious. Although such inaction is attributable less to negative thoughts and emotions as to a lack of a compassion. It is thus important that we are no less determined to overcome our habitual tendency to laziness than we are to exercise restraint in response to afflictive emotion. This is no easy task and those who are religiously minded must understand that there is no blessing or initiation which if only we could conceive it, or any mysterious or magical formula or mantra or ritual, if only we could discover it, that can, able, that can enable us to achieve transformation instantly. It comes little by little, just as a building is constructed brick by brick, or as the Tibetan expression has it, an ocean is formed drop by drop. Also because, unlike our bodies which soon get sick, old, and worn out, the afflictive emotions never age. It is important to realize that dealing with them is a lifelong struggle, nor should the reader suppose that what we are talking about here is the mere acquisition of knowledge. It is not even a question of developing the conviction that may come from such knowledge. What we are talking about is gaining an experience of virtue through constant practice and familiarization so that it becomes spontaneous. What we find is that the more we develop concern for others' well-being, the easier it becomes to act in others' interests. As we become habituated to the effort required, so the struggle, is, so the struggle to sustain it lessens. Even, eventually it will become second nature. But there are no shortcuts. Engaging in virtuous activities is a bit like bringing up a young child. A great many factors are involved, and especially at the beginning, we need to be prudent and skillful in our endeavors to transform our habits and dispositions. We also need to be realistic about what we can expect to achieve. It took us a long time to become the way we are, and habits are not changed overnight. So while it is good to raise our sights as we progress, it is a mistake to judge our behavior by using the ideal as a standard, just as in college it would be foolish to judge our child's performance as a first-year student from the perspective of a graduate. Graduation is the ideal, not the standard. For this reason, far more effective than short bursts of heroic effort followed by periods of laxity is to work steadily like a stream flowing toward our goal of transformation. One method that is very helpful in sustaining us in this lifelong task of transformation is to adopt a daily routine which can be adjusted according to our progress. Of course, as with the patient practice of virtue in general, this is something religious practice encourages. But that is no reason, but that is no reason why non-believers should not use some of the ideas and techniques which have served humanity so well over the course of millennia. Making a habit of concern for others' well-being and spending a few minutes on walking in the morning reflecting on the value of conducting our lives 
in an ethically disciplined manner is a good way to start the day no matter what our beliefs or lack of them. The same is true of taking some time at the end of each day to review how successful in this we have been. Such a, such a discipline is very helpful in developing our determination not to, not to behave self-indulgently. If these suggestions sound somewhat onerous to the reader, searching not for nirvana or salvation, but simply for human happiness, it is worth reminding ourselves that what brings us the greatest joy and satisfaction in life are those actions we undertake out of concerns for others. Indeed, we can go further. For whereas the fundamental questions of human existence, such as why we are here, where we are going, and whether the universe had a beginning, have each elicited different responses in different philosophical traditions, it is self-evident that a generous heart and wholesome actions lead to greater peace. And it is equally clear that their negative counterparts bring undesirable consequences. Happiness arises from virtuous causes. If we truly desire to be happy, there is no other way to proceed but by way of virtue. It is the method by which happiness is achieved. And we might add that the basis of virtue is ground is ethical discipline. Not bad. <clears throat> that was a really good last part. Man. So just, just so you know, if you're tuning in, I had to re-record um that last part and this was the third time that i had tried every time that i have tried before this the two times that i tried before this or three times sorry it um my computer restarted on me so apparently it wanted me to um wait a whole day I waited a whole day <laughs> and then read that second part to you so pretty good stuff though um, that was really insightful and the fact that I read it three times just uh, kind of blew my mind um, some really really good points in that one I think really good stuff So yeah, um, thanks for coming. Uh, I'm going <clears> to <throat> pump out some more stuff here tonight. So there will be some new stuff to read, guys. Or listen to me read. Thanks for coming. All right.